a deeper look, exploring what works and what doesn't in development and the changes we can make together to turn ideas into action. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to a Deeper Look podcast. I'm Patrick Fine, CEO of FHI 360, and today I'm joined by Kerry Hessler-Radlett, President and CEO of Project Concern International, or PCI, a global development organization working with families and communities to enhance health, end hunger, and overcome hardship in 16 countries. Carrie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here. As our returning listeners know, this year we're focusing on the darker side of development. So we're talking about the paradoxes, the unintended consequences of development efforts, the issues that too often we shy away from in the development community. Today, Carrie and I are going to explore the topic of hashtag aid to the issues around sexual harassment, exploitation, and abuse associated with development work. Listeners, before we dive into the discussion, I just want to give you some background on Carrie, who brings decades of experience in human development to this conversation. Prior to PCI, Carrie served as the Worldwide Director of Peace Corps. Before that, she was the Deputy Director of Peace Corps. She's also had leadership roles at John Snow International, a major health organization, served as a lead consultant on the first five-year global HIV AIDS strategy for PEPFAR, and she founded the Special Olympics in the Gambia. I'm also proud to say that Carrie is an FHI 360 alumnus having served as our country director in Indonesia in the 1990s. Carrie started her career in international development in Peace Corps in Samoa. So we have that in common. Carrie and I have known each other for a long time. I have tremendous respect and admiration for you, Carrie, as a leader in our community. So I'm so happy to be able to explore this topic of sexual harassment, exploitation and abuse within the development community. Recently, you were the co-chair with Abby Maxim of Oxfam of a task force set up by InterAction, which is a association of organizations that work on international development that looked at sexual harassment and abuse and proposed a set of guidelines and recommendations for organizations working in this area. Can you tell us a little bit about that task force? Sure, absolutely. First of all, Interaction has about almost 200 members. So it's an umbrella organization of international development and humanitarian assistance organizations. And so when the Me Too movement happened and this issue, especially the expose that happened about a year and a half or two years ago about the sexual misconduct of senior leaders in some of the countries, and a number of organizations were implemented. Oxfam got a lot of publicity, but it absolutely was not the only one. And I really do believe it was linked in with the Me Too movement Mm -hmm. um, because that movement took the whole issue of sexual assault out of the shadows and gave people permission to to raise their voice about the terrible abuse that they had been suffering silently. Interaction, because it is so tuned into the 
interests and needs of nonprofits, created a task force, a sexual harassment and abuse task force, which then led to the development of a CEO pledge, which has been signed by 128 members of Interaction, which commits the partner organizations to doing a number of things that will enable these member organizations to prevent the sexual harassment, abuse, and exploitation of and by NGO workers. So it's a commitment that we're going to work within each of our organizations to really make a difference in our part of perpetuating this this issue and creating a corporate culture that will allow people to thrive and come forward in a safe environment. Interaction was joined in this effort by our Canadian and European counterparts, so this is something, this pledge idea has taken a hold in different countries, and I understand that some private sector organizations and even the um, Association of Private Contractors in our Mm -hmm. business have also created their own pledge. So it's basically a statement that we will not stand for this kind of behavior. Oh, and the recognition that that kind of that that behavior, sexual harassment, exploitation and abuse has been present right in development work, in development organizations forever. For time immemorial. Right. Let's be honest, this problem is as old as humankind. And it struck me how quickly the Me Too movement was taken up by the development community. So it was really literally just a few weeks between when hashtag Me Too exploded in art societies around the world that you had organizations like our organizations starting to look inward and say, wait a minute, this is an issue in the industry, in the work that we do, in the countries where we work in, and in our own organizations. Exactly. And I think that part of that was the permission, so to speak, that was given to speak out for survivors who have been holding it in silence for so long to be able to speak their truth. And I know this from a very personal basis because I myself was a sexual assault survivor who kept silent for 30 years. Can you share that story with our listeners? I would be happy to share that story because that story has become part of who I am and why I care so much about this journey we're on. And it's become a part of my leadership in this area. So I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Western Samoa in the early 80s with my husband, Steve, who you know. It was very shortly after I arrived in Samoa that I was assaulted for the first time by my associate Peace Corps director, so my direct supervisor, who was also, by the way, the highest ranking Samoan on the Peace Corps staff, and I might add, the the head of the Lutheran Church in Samoa. So a man with great credibility and high esteem within Samoa. And status there. And status, exactly. So when he assaulted me the first time, I thought, I blamed myself, I was humiliated, I was afraid to speak up because of his high status. I thought that perhaps I had said something or done something that had indicated to him that I might be interested in him, which of course was ridiculous. Um, But it is very common for people to blame themselves and to examine their own behavior to see what did I do that misled them. I was assaulted a total of three times. All of those times were within the Peace Corps office, and he stalked me, and he targeted me. And it wasn't until the third time that I felt that I had gained the courage to be able to speak out against him. And when I went to Peace Corps leadership, although they listened kindly 
and they offered some amount of support and submitted a report to Washington. Absolutely nothing happened. So there were no consequences to the person who was preying upon you? He was sent back to Washington for a conversation. The last assault took place just weeks before I was scheduled to depart. I think he thought I would leave country and never say a word. I submitted a report the last week before I left. I was under the impression that he had been removed from his job, but when I came back 30 years later, I discovered that he continued in his job and also he continued preying on women for 15 more years. It reveals the degree to which we in the development community and organizations like Peace Corps and other development organizations somehow accepted that behavior, sexual harassment and abuse as, as um, well, we just accepted it. Yeah. Whether yeah. you, He's just you a man being a man, it, you right? You deplored it. And I think of my own Peace Corps experience in Swaziland. And I recall then that in our training, women were told you're going to be harassed. harassed. Yeah. And that's going to be part of your experience. And so you just need to know how to deal with well, it. And they were essentially just told, look, in this, it was seen as a cultural thing. In right. this society, in this culture, uh, men will uh, uh, can't call you, they'll propose love to you, and you just need to deal with it. Here are some strategies exactly. for dealing with it, but pretty much accepting it and saying, deal with it. Yeah. I mean, it's not different from our own country where, you know, every woman of my age had the professor that made a move on them or you'd walk by a construction site and there would be cat calls or there'd be some guy who would grab you in the bar it's it's part of our culture too i mean we have evolved since then but yes and by the way if you were sexually assaulted there were no reporting mechanisms there was no training particularly apart from what you just said i think the main strategy that women were advised was to wear a wedding ring if they right. were single right because then they could say to a man, oh, I'm married, Right. so sorry. As if that would make a difference. Right. right. It didn't make a difference in your case. It didn't make a difference. He knew very well I was married, and my husband was a volunteer. And I have to tell you, I want to speak a little bit about that, because I was so ashamed and so humiliated, embarrassed by this whole set of events, and I was afraid. I was afraid that if I spoke up against this man that I might have to leave Samoa and the work that I love so mm -hmm. much. I was afraid that no one would believe me. I was afraid that people would start asking me about the clothes that I was wearing. I mean, all the things that you hear about in the Me Too movement, about the victim blaming. So the only person I told was Steve, my husband, and I swore him to silence because I was afraid. Yeah, you were afraid you'd be but, sent home. But the impact on him was profound too. Can you imagine a newly married young man whose wife is being assaulted by the highest ranking Samoan and he is unable to protect me? Mm -hmm. He was, he felt angry. He felt, to some extent, I think, emasculated that he wasn't able to protect. And he wanted to honor my request for silence. And yet it, it was a, it was a very difficult time for him as well. He was as effective as I was in some ways, in a different way, but equally profound and important. Right. So fast forward to when I became the deputy director of the Peace Corps, literally two weeks after I arrived. I had been sworn in as deputy director of the Peace Corps because I was deputy for two years before I became mm -hmm. acting director and then director. 
we got a phone call from Brian Ross, the head of 2020, and they were going to do an expose on Peace Corps and volunteer dissatisfaction with the way Peace Corps was addressing the concerns of some of its volunteers. And the catalyst of this was the murder of an incredibly wonderful volunteer named Kate Pusey in Benin, who had been brutally murdered after she had been a whistleblower exposing the sexual misconduct of a part-time Peace Corps language instructor. And they wanted to do a story on 2020. Now, I can tell you the last thing you want in your life is an interview on 2020. But we had to stand up. I mean, we had to be part of it because part of the frustration of the Pusey family and then later what ended up happening is a group of Peace Corps volunteers who had been sexually assaulted joined that 2020 program. Their allegation was that Peace Corps was callous and cold and didn't care. And so if we had said we are not going to participate in this program, what we are essentially saying is we you, don't care. Yeah, validating. We're, called, we're validating those right. allegations. We had to care. We had to listen. And it was very painful, and it was really hard because I was having to confront my own sexual assault for the first time. And although it was an incredibly difficult time because it became a really public Me Too moment for Peace Corps. Before Me Too. Wasn't before, before it was, Me Too? It was, yeah, it was eight years before Me Too. Yeah. However... I would say that it was the best thing that ever happened to Peace Corps because it enabled us to examine ourselves and to look at the underlying culture that allowed sexual harassment and assault to persist. Now, I want to say one thing, and that is that sexual assaults by Peace Corps staff on Peace Corps volunteers are incredibly unusual, and there are very strict repercussions for that. That was my story, but that is not a very common story. The most common situation is a Peace Corps volunteer being assaulted by a host country national mm -hmm. and occasionally by another Peace Corps volunteer. And I also want to say that despite the fact that I was sexually assaulted, Peace Corps was by far the most transformative experience of my life. And so I had a really happy Peace Corps experience, but this is also part of my journey. But when I, in 2020, heard the testimony of those six women who were very courageously coming forward and laying out for the world what had happened to them, I knew that we had failed them as an agency. I knew that we had not given them the support and care and training that allowed them to reduce their risk. We did not provide survivor-centered trauma-informed care, and we had a ton of work to do to make it right, so to speak, mm -hmm. with our volunteers. So that became the beginning of a journey, creating a Peace Corps Sexual Assault Risk Reduction and Response Program that continues to this day. And have you been able to draw on that experience of helping to equip Peace Corps to deal with sexual harassment and abuse in transferring those lessons or applying those lessons to the broader development community. You know, it's funny because my background's in public health and women's reproductive health and HIV in particular, but I never thought I'd become someone who spends a lot of her life talking about sexual assault. Because remember, prior to that moment, I had never spoken to anyone publicly about my sexual mm -hmm. assault. But yes, it has been profoundly important as something that I can offer up to the community. So when the Me Too movement came out a couple years ago, and then especially the Aid to movement and the expose of Oxfam and others, right. Interaction actually reached out to me because they knew of the work that had been done by Peace Corps. I mean, I'm really proud to say that Peace Corps has 
in some ways created the gold standard for at least the federal government. We made 30 policy changes. We created an Office of Victim Advocacy. We had an anonymous hotline for reporting. We've trained every single staff person. We had specialized training for first responders and survivor-centered trauma-informed care. And we were guided through all that by a sexual assault advisory council that looked at everything we did, and that council was comprised of our nation's leading experts on this topic. So we were able to institute best practice because we were the Peace Corps and we could draw on all of our nation's resources. So so we brought people in from Defense Department and from the National Institutes of Justice and from universities. and So so you looked at research, you looked at the evidence base. Exactly, and we were guided by these experts in the development of our program. And since that became so much of what I did, when I came over to the NGO sector as president and CEO of Project Concern International, PCI now, and as an active member of Interaction, when the Aid to movement started and when Interaction was wanting to convene a meeting around this subject, I raised my hand and said, well, there's a lot of knowledge in this room already. And Oxfam had already, I have to say, in Oxfam's defense, let's say, that they responded immediately and um, and created an independent commission to review abuses. They followed best practice and have been really investing in creating programs, training their people, and especially creating a values-led culture that will not allow abuse to thrive. So what are the best practices that may still be emerging or have already been adopted by development organizations? You know, it's such a tough issue, and every organization is different. By definition, it needs to be a personalized response, and it starts first with the organizational culture. I believe firmly that the most important thing any of us can do is create an organizational culture that does not make it acceptable to demean people in any way. And this is where sexual assault, harassment, and abuse is so much linked in with addressing issues of gender disparity, Mm -hmm. power imbalances, prejudicial behavior, a place where humor is used as a weapon to abuse people and where abuse masquerades as a joke. So that's a culture in many places. Mm -hmm. People abuse people and then you say, that offends me and they say, you can't take a joke. And so that kind of culture is a kind of culture where sexual harassment, assault, and abuse thrives. And so the very first thing you can do is address the underlying organizational culture. And that is hard. That's really hard because organizations are made up of people with different perspectives and different experiences. So having honest and open conversations, I think it starts at the top. So first among the senior leadership around What is the kind of organizational culture that we stand for? What are our values and how can we connect our values to the work that we do on the ground to upholding the dignity and common humanity of our employees Mm -hmm. and the people we serve? How can we ensure that we are equally concerned about how we treat each other as we are about how we treat our communities that we serve? And linking that all together in an approach that really sends a message that it is not acceptable to demean human beings in any way, shape, or form. That's the most important first step, but it's, you know, you can train people, 
You can have open conversations. I think actually one of the most powerful things we did at Peace Corps is we had open conversations on really hard topics. Did you find that those conversations were often contentious in the sense that you had a variety of points of view and disagreement about what constituted harassment and what fell within the normal range of human interaction? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you had to create an environment where it was okay to disagree. The other thing we found at Peace Corps, we're now implementing it at PCI, is that we really have to identify how you can support the dignity of an individual. So it's not only talking about sexual assault and harassment, it's also talking about diversity and inclusion, and you're addressing issues of race, and you're talking about all of the different ways in which people... Interact with each other. Interact with each other in a way that demeans them, often unintended. Right. So for me, I think of what you're describing as creating a workplace environment or an organizational culture that respects everybody. Absolutely. I mean, the the byword that we're using is we want to create an organizational culture that honors the dignity and common humanity of all people. And if you create that kind of workplace environment, then sexual abuse and harassment power imbalances, right. exclusion, exclusion or, yeah, of all kind yeah. cannot thrive. Right. You also create an environment where it is acceptable and even celebrated for people to stand up and raise their voice and say, look, I, I, I think you didn't mean it this way, but what you said really hurt my feelings. And can we talk about it? I mean, having an environment where it's safe to raise tough issues is critically important. But in order to do that, you've got to actually be willing to have those conversations. Right. The 2020 program was perhaps the best thing that ever happened to Peace Corps because it allowed us to begin to have really hard conversations about who we really are and what kind of organization we wanted to be and how we wanted to support our volunteers and how we wanted to support our staff and what we can do to prepare both our staff and our volunteers to keep themselves safe and when bad things happen, how we can respond to them in an effective way. And, and the, the challenge that that I see in organizations uh, like like mine is how do you distinguish between behavior that is disrespectful and that violates that value because we absolutely subscribe to that cultural value respect for each other and having an environment that enables us empowers us to do our work mm-hmm. you're going to have times when you disagree with with a colleague times when if you're a supervisor you may reprimand the colleague or or you know give them negative feedback because their performance is poor how do we distinguish between what i would characterize as being sort of normal human interaction that entails disagreement or may even at times involve some rude behavior from disrespect. I feel like employees struggle with defining those lines. Yeah, no, I think I think you bring up a very important point. But I also think part of it is reframing and learning new skills, reframing the way you have those difficult conversations and developing new skills so you don't default to the rude behavior. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would actually say the rude behavior is actually never acceptable, even if you're under stress. It's it's not an excuse you can use. Mm-hmm. At PCI, we created the Dignity Initiative, and we did this at Peace Corps too, but it was a little different. It's our way of rolling together sexual harassment, assault, and abuse prevention and response. It's also our Diversity and Inclusion Initiative. It's all about how do you create a motivated workforce 
But it's very concrete information, guidelines, and sets of skills that people can use. So Mm -hmm. we started with emotional intelligence. What does it mean? How do we develop emotional intelligence? How do you give and receive feedback? What are some words you can use, some tools, some pivots, when you are having a conversation that that seems like it's about to go off the rails? Mm -hmm. So these are all skills that can be learned. There are some really very specific kinds of skills development that you can do that help people develop a new language that isn't rude, isn't inflammatory or demeaning, even if it's accidental. And and to some extent, we have started to speak differently, to use different words. And uh, it's a lot about how we see ourselves and how we use our power. You know, the other thing I would like to say around the whole issue of sexual assault, harassment, and abuse is that it's not about sex it's about power it's about power imbalances and gender disparities and it lives in that space Mm -hmm. so some people have said to me why is it so bad in the humanitarian space aren't you supposed to be helping others and the truth of the matter is of course we are here to help others and that's why it's so important that we address this issue head-on it's so jarring and it's so jarring when we encounter it but because of our work Our work takes us to places where there are severe power imbalances and many gender disparities and all sorts of examples of inequality. And sometimes we're working in conflict situations where rape, sexual violence is accepted. And you can, I think, become inured to it. And so you have to stop and say, you don't want to become that frog in the boiling water. You have to stop and say, this is absolutely unacceptable. I don't like the way I'm talking to my coworker. I don't like the way my coworker is talking to me. I don't like that joke. And as leaders, we have to set the tone and we're not perfect. Every single one of us makes mistakes every single day. And it's just sort of self-correcting is important. Well, and self-awareness, I Mm -hmm. guess, is the key to that, or at least seeking to be self-aware. Exactly. And it can be learned. The second part is having the systems, the reporting systems in place. When or if harassment or assault occurs, you need to have the policies, procedures, etc., so that someone can report confidentially. They need to be able to have access to services. You need to be able to access legal services in case there is you know, a lawsuit. You need to have all of those human resource policies, practices, and procedures that will allow a person to make a confidential report and then get the support that they need, mostly from outside. Mostly it involves referral to a survivor clinic or something, Uh you know, a a place where they can get support. Uh Rape crisis center or, you know, a medical clinic. To a survivor support center. Exactly. The third part of it, how can we ensure that our staff around the world, because many of us work in very decentralized environments, many of whom may be working in humanitarian crises where they're making snap decisions, where there's great imbalance, power imbalances between a refugee who's nearly arrived in a community with nothing and our staff person that's handing out things that will literally save their life. So that's a very disparate stark, power, very stark, stark, very power. stark power imbalance. You know, how do we prepare our staff to ensure that they're living out our values of doing good in the world? How do we make sure that our own staff don't become the people who are abusing and harassing? So that and was taking the... advantage of that power and balance. Exactly. So, so let me ask you about that because much of our conversation up to now 
has focused on sexual harassment and abuse that is internal to the organization, so among employees. Another dimension concerns when employees of aid organizations sexually harass or abuse the community members in the communities where they are working and where our organizations are supposed to be adding value and doing good. I, I think this is a huge example of the dark side of development. Exactly. Because forever there's been a knowledge that sexual harassment and abuse does occur within the work that we do and it has been seen as either incidental or uh, an aberration and it's either ignored or it's been dealt with on a case-by-case basis so an individual wrongdoer may be fired from their job or if they're an expat sent out of the country right but without any broader repercussions or self-reflection. So I I think this is an example of the darker side of development. Looking at that dimension of abuse of participants, what do you see there? Well, to some extent, I see the same thing. I mean, basically what you have, for example, is an aid worker who is demanding sex for food or for cash or for a place to stay. So it's a power imbalance. It's a person exerting power over another in a coercive way. Mm-hmm. And so the way that you deal with it is not different from what we talked about earlier. You have to make sure that you have policies and procedures that say very clearly that that is unacceptable. It has to be written into your organizational value statement, and it has to be made clear for every kind of worker, from the CEO down to the person who's handing out food rations. You have to have training and you have to help people understand what it means to harass or abuse because like you said, in some places it's so socially or culturally acceptable that people don't even see it as being wrong or it's explained away as okay during this turbulent time. And so you have to be very clear that this is what we mean by sexual harassment and abuse. And if you do this, you will be fired. There have to be consequences and people have to be held accountable and it has to go into their performance evaluation. If we fire someone for sexual misconduct, our pledge commits us to giving an honest reference because what has happened far too often is that perpetrators are passed on from organization to organization and they continue to do their misconduct. One of the most effective ways to train is to take actual scenarios of actual situations where harassment or abuse took place in an environment that was close to what they can understand and talk about it because oftentimes what you find is that people don't really recognize it as harassment or abuse until confronted with it like oh I didn't realize that me making a suggestive comment to that woman refugee is going to make her feel unsafe and threatened by my behavior you know a lot of times it's calling it out and you have to make sure that within your policies and practices and reporting structures that people are celebrated for speaking out. Right. Because silence is what allows it to happen. Silence is what drives it. Yes, silence is its friend. Silence is its friend. So what about the responsibility of organizations that are working in, say, a conflict setting where 
they're aware that harassment or abuse has taken place, but it's not their direct employees who are involved in it. For example, you're working in a refugee camp. You're there really at the invitation of the local government authority. And you're faced with the prospect of, on one hand, you could uh, call it out, but then that will almost certainly lead to your being expelled and not allowed to continue working in that location. What is the responsibility that we have to confront sexual harassment and abuse in that situation? Right. What our pledge commits us to is speaking out. Not We have to, at times, take a stand for what is right, regardless of the fact that it may cost us. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what the pledge is all about. In making the CEO pledge and then 128 organizations taking the pledge. And when we take the pledge, by the way, it's not only for our organization, but all of those subcontractors and subpartners that we work with. And we commit to doing that training to ensure that that behavior is not perpetuated on the ground by anyone that we have um, hired or have a relationship with. But the pledge is also about ensuring that we're able to draw on the resources of our donor partners. So if we are funded, let's say, by USAID or o OFDA UNHCR. or UNHCR, they likewise have committed to rooting out sexual harassment, assault, and exploitation. Mm -hmm. And so when we witness that, maybe where we want to report it to is an organization that has more power than we do individually. That's the power of the collective. You know, part of really moving the needle is being willing to stand up when it's hard, being willing to even lose business when we have to in order to stand up for principle. And what it means is that you're standing up for your community. It's not only a stance to, to sort of save your own morality, but it's also a stance in favor of people who have been abused so much. Carrie, you've mentioned a, a number of times that it's important to create an environment where victims or survivors feel safe to speak out. And you've talked about we need to call these actions out when they occur. But that puts a lot of uh, responsibility for dealing with the problem on the victim, on, uh -huh. the, on the person who's being harassed. Uh -huh. How do you look at that? What we hope to do is empower the survivor, but I would say what a broader concept is, is we're trying to create an organizational culture where others will raise their voice in unison with the, with the survivor. So it doesn't have to rely just on the victim, the no. bystanders. Of, exactly. Would... One of the most important parts of the training is the bystander intervention training. Mm -hmm. So this is part of the training that we were talking about. So bystander intervention means that you... A, agree that when you see something, you're going to say something, you're going to speak up. And the second part of it is, is that you also agree that you will be intervened upon, that you are going to accept intervention. Right. Another thing I want to say is that we've been talking a lot about sexual assault and abuse as if it were always women who were abused. And in fact, that is not the case at all. Men are also assaulted and harassed and abused. So I just wanted to make sure we made that point. But basically, the intent of all of this is to make it everybody's problem and the fact that everybody is part of the solution. It doesn't matter who you are. We all have a responsibility to speak out against abuse and exploitation. So and let me ask about solutions, because I don't have a sense that there's a consensus on what the right response, organizational response is. And there seems to be a spectrum with 
those who say, well, no matter what the severity of the instance, the person should be immediately fired, to those who say, well, it needs to be calibrated, the punishment needs to match the severity of the offense, so we need to have some way of making a judgment about how severe the offense was. Mm -hmm. Should it be zero tolerance that if, if somebody does anything that is considered as uh, crossing a, a line that they should be immediately terminated? Or is there some calibration? You know, there has been conversation about this, and particularly in the human resources discussion, because um, Interaction also brought together the human resource directors for, for a conversation on this topic. So mm -hmm. it wasn't as much what the CEOs talked about as much as it was around the human resources discussion. The way it's handled, I think, is the way it is normally within the human resources, your, your own human resources policies and procedures, which is why it's really important to make those very clear. The other thing I would say is that because so often there is interpretation involved where there's a situation where someone says something and it is perceived in a different way than it was intended, you have to be able to have a dialogue about that. There needs to be space to be able to have a conversation. And sometimes that can happen between the two people who are involved in it. Sometimes it's so painful that it has to be done with intervention from the human resources team. Or it just has to be facilitated. In some ways, it's equipping our human resources teams to be able to have those tough conversations that get to what was said and then developing a plan to help improve that, you know, ameliorate that issue if it's possible or fire them if they have to, mm -hmm. depending on the seriousness of it. I, I mean, I do think that it has to be calibrated because you, you need to be fair to all people. You need to hear both sides, but you have to have some very clear policies and procedures that govern it because otherwise you risk having allegations of unfairness. I think the hardest thing is when people don't realize that they are being abusive just because they come from a culture where something may be acceptable. Mm -hmm. But what is being experienced by the other is very painful and, and demeaning. And what the eye does not see, the heart cannot feel. So if you don't, if you're not exposed to concepts of dignity and humanity and what constitutes sexual assault or harassment, it's very hard for you then to to behave in a way that will always uphold people's dignity, if that makes sense. It does, yeah, and I love that, um, that saying. Carrie, I've learned a ton just listening to you share your perspective on this topic. And I want to invite listeners, if you've got comments um, or questions that you want to share with us, please send them in wherever you get your podcast. Now, Carrie, uh, this year, I've been asking all of the guests of A Deeper Look podcast a couple of questions, and I'd like to pose the same two questions to you. Uh, the first one is, what is something almost no one agrees with you on? Well, in my household, I really love boxed Kraft macaroni and cheese. And I love to douse it in ketchup. Ooh. And everyone else <laughs> in my family thinks this is really disgusting. And the truth of the matter is it's completely devoid of any nutritional value. But I find it to be the ultimate 
comfort food. All right. So comfort food is what almost no one agrees with you on. And I would have to say that I don't agree with you on ketchup doused macaroni and cheese. So So I I understand that one. Uh, The second question that I've been asking my guess is what's one lesson you learned during your career in international development that you'd like to share with our listeners? I think one of the most important things I've learned over my career is the importance of listening because that is how we learn to do our job better and that's how we are able to make profound transformative change within our own self. So the importance of listening is really one of the lessons that I'm continually working on because I like to talk and you can't listen if you're talking. The second thing I really want to say here today is I want to acknowledge that in the listening audience today there are most likely women and men who have suffered profound injury as a result of sexual violence. And many of them may have spoken out and others like me may keep it buried deep inside themselves because it's really hard, it's, it's profoundly difficult to come forward with your painful stories of what has happened to you. And it takes an extraordinary level of trust and vulnerability to be able to speak your truth. But I know that for me, my healing really began when I was able to tell my story. And so what I wanted to say to your listeners at the end of this podcast is that it is your decision to disclose or not disclose. The decision to seek help is your decision alone, along with the support of family and friends if you choose. But I know that my healing began when I had the courage to examine what happened to me. And I want people to know that they are in control of their story and their narrative. I just think it's important to say that because there is so much that has not been said. And one of the most important consequences of Me Too is for people who have never had the voice to express the painful truth that they've been living with for many years suddenly are freed up to do that. And so I just want to say that if you feel that you are ready and it is your decision alone, I have found that there is healing in truth-telling. Thank you, Carrie. Um, That is a very powerful way to end this episode. You said that the most important lesson you've learned is listening, and I have learned a tremendous amount listening to you today. I'm sure our listeners have learned and benefited from you sharing your own experience and then the perspective that you bring to how we as development organizations, we as people working in development, try to apply those lessons and try to apply those experiences to um, to our work so that it is respectful, so that we do affirm the dignity of all people, so that we do embrace practices that create an environment where respect thrives. Thank you. Oh, what a privilege it has been. 